Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Mpate in Washington. Today is Thursday, August 11th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Kenyans anxiously await results from Tuesday's presidential election. Each campaign team has its own turning center. The media has its own turning center. And there's a feeling that the Republican president is leading. But everybody is very cautious about it, and uh, people are waiting for IEBC to be the amount of the results. Angolan civil society groups urged support for a U.S. Senate resolution calling for free and fair elections on August 24th. The U.S. is concerned by a U.N. report accusing Rwanda of backing rebels in the DRC. Seven are charged with a brutal gang rape in South Africa. Guinea's opposition FNDC vows more protests despite a ban by the military junta. The action by the military was illegal. And for us, we always going to keep uh, fighting for democratic values. And we even plan a protest in the coming days. And over one million Somalis are displaced by drought. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. reports from Tuesday's Kenyan presidential, parliamentary, and local elections continue to trickle in. Results as of late Wednesday show the contest is too close to call, with Deputy President William Ruto holding a very slim lead over main rival Raila Odinga. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst. He tells me that while the law permits political parties and the media to tabulate their own results, only the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission the IEDC can announce winners. You know, the polling stations are declared by courts as the final authority of the presidential outcome. So there are about uh, 46,000 polling stations. Each polling station has submitted their form. So the first ballot papers to be counted by the president, then they go for the member of the National Assembly like that. So by yesterday evening, each polling station in the country had counted the vote cast for the presidential election. After that, they submitted those forms. Those forms were submitted electronically. So all the polling stations have submitted their forms 34A, which is the, the form that is filtering the results of our polling station. Now, what is currently happening is the collation of the results of the different polling stations. They are being tallied so that we know. As we stand right now, when you look at the media houses that are projecting, they're saying maybe 12,000 or so have been verified and tallied. So we, we're still waiting. Yes. So based on results that have been yes. released, which of the candidates yes. is in the lead according to preliminary results now? Who is in the lead? Each of them is calling themselves out as a winner. But you know, because of the effects of the 2007 election, there's an element of restraint and waiting for IEBC to undertake this process so that they make the final announcement. But in all fairness, each campaign team has its own telling center. The media has its own telling center. Uh, different media set up their own independent telling center. And there's a feeling that the native president is leading. But everybody is very cautious about it. And uh, people are waiting for IEBC. IEBC to be the amount of the results. But I believe each presidential candidate has his own telling center. They all know the situation as is. They're just going through the motions of giving IEBC the opportunity to finalize the tally. Is there a controversy between the IEBC 
announcing results and the media houses announcing their own results? Or is that against the law? The law states that the announcement is the IBC. But uh, it's, it's the role of IBC to make the announcement. However, by uploading and publicly sharing where these forms are, everybody has been given an opportunity to, you can download the forms, you can do your own tallying, but you cannot announce. You know, one of the challenges in the 2017 petition that led to the cancellation of the general election of uh, 2017 at the presidential level was the access to this public information. Now, what the electoral body has done is that uh, it has ensured that if you want to have them, you can see them but you cannot announce. So each campaign is restrained not to make an announcement, to allow IEBC to go on the process of verification and uh, collation of, of the different forms. There is no contradiction because that form that is, is, a authority, is a authority on matters of the election outcome at the particular polling station. So when do you think the final results in the presidential election will be announced? By law, IEBC has seven days to announce by law. However, because of the tensions that are building, I think this anxiety is not good even for the country. Yeah? I would have loved that uh, by tomorrow morning, this matter should have been finalized. Mr. Kiyoko, thank yes. you so much for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you, and have a lovely day. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst speaking from the capital, Nairobi. The people of Angola will hold presidential, parliamentary, and municipal elections on August 24. A resolution in the U.S. Senate introduced by New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez and chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the two Democratic senators from the state of Maryland is calling on the Angolan government to hold free, fair, and peaceful elections. A group of civil society organizations has written to U.S. senators urging support for the measures. Florindo Chivukute is the executive director of Friends of Angola. He tells me the group support the resolution because free and fair elections are important for the stability of Angola. So the resolution basically, it's a broad Angolan support for the U.S. Senate resolution, calling on the government of Angola to hold free, fair and peaceful elections on August 24th. So basically, we're just supporting those resolutions that talks about how it's important to have a free, fair, and peaceful elections in Angola, and also making sure that anyone who attempts to overt the democratic process they will be held accountable. So uh, right now, the candidates are campaigning, the ruling MPLA and the opposition. How would you describe the atmosphere as the parties campaign? Free and fair so far? Yes, so the campaign has been going well. I mean, we have heard only a few complaints. For instance, UNITA went to lead campaign. Specifically, the president of UNITA went to Lunda Norte yesterday. And then when he got there, there was no hotels because according to many people on social media, and he also stated during a campaign speech that the governor asked all the hotels to close. They said they couldn't host him and whoever was with him. So you have that. And then uh, you also have the president of National Electoral Commission making a statement that anyone who attempts to stay close to the polls after they voting, they should be detained or arrested, basically infringing on a free movement. Of- what about the participation of civil society, the media? What is the policy now as the election draws near 
about monitors, international monitors? So the, the civil society is engaged. I mean, I never seen the such level of engagement, right? So really engaged on public civil campaign. Also, they are calling out either the opposition or even the ruling party whenever they make statements that they deem to be probably inflammatory or something that is not relevant. So civil society is engaged 100% to the levels that I haven't seen so far in the previous elections. Now, at the media, the laws are saying that you have to allocate equal time as the elections come official beginning of the campaign. So the television, TV, journals, and radio, public media needs to allocate equal amount of time for each political party so they can have space to present a political agenda. Now, so far, it hasn't been that the case. There are people who are tracking the time, and by far, the public media, that television, radio, and newspaper, is giving far more time to MPLA, the ruling party, than all the political parties in opposition combined. And we talk about the huge discrepancy, really, in terms of time on public media. And so that actually is illegal. Are they inviting any international observers? Yes, they did. They did, except they have been very selective. In other words, in order for you to come to Angola as an observer, the Angolan National Commission has to send you an invitation. They have to invite you for you to come. Thank you so much. It's always nice to talk with you. Likewise. Thank you, James. Florindo Chivukute is the executive director of Friends of Angola. You are speaking from the Angolan capital, Luanda. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Wednesday he is very concerned about a U.N. report that says Rwanda is backing rebels in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Victoria Amunga reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi, Kenya. Concluding a two-day visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he was disturbed by a U.N. Security Council report showing that Rwanda provided troop reinforcement for M23 rebels in eastern Congo last November. Speaking in Congo's capital, Kinshasa, Blinken vowed to raise the matter during his imminent visit to Rwanda. He called on all parties in the region to stop supporting M23 rebels who are fighting the DRC government in eastern Congo. The group reemerged in November last year after nearly a decade of ceasefire. The Rwandan government has denied assisting M23. The top U.S. diplomat who is on his second Africa tour assured Congo of U.S. support, especially in investment, to ensure best practices are upheld. He encouraged the DRC to collaborate and work on fiscal transparency and labor rights for the mining sector. The U.S. pledged 30 million U.S. dollars to help the DRC promote responsible and sustainable mining practices and raised concerns about the auction of Congo's oil and gas blocks in sensitive areas. In July, Reuters reported that licensing rights for 30 gas and oil blocks in the DRC were auctioned, opening parts of the world's second largest rainforest to drilling that could release large amounts of carbon into the air and jeopardize efforts to stem global warming. Washington and Kinshasa agreed to form working groups on environmental impacts on oil block auctions. Blinken heads to Rwanda late Wednesday to wrap up his visit to the African continent. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. As U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his trip to Rwanda today, Thursday, 
the last leg of his trip to Africa, Human Rights Watch is calling for him to highlight what the group calls systemic human rights violations, including crackdowns on opponents and on civil society, even beyond its border. The group says the government of President Paul Kagame has waged a brutal campaign for years against critics, including Internet bloggers who are being arrested and threatened. Activists say some have been forcibly disappeared and others died under suspicious circumstances. They want Blinken to ask for concrete updates on investigations into the cases of those who are missing. The media says Blinken is set to raise the case of critic Paul Rousseau-Sebagina, now a Belgian citizen who was taken in 2020 by the Rwandan Investigation Bureau as he traveled from the U.S. to the United Arab Emirates. He was given a lengthy sentence after a trial that activists say lacked due process and other fair trial guarantees. Activists say attacks continue on refugees living abroad, including in Kenya, Uganda, and Mozambique. Rwanda is also accused of aiding M23 rebels responsible for much of the violence in eastern DRC, a charge that Kigali denies. The UN group of experts on Congo says it has found solid evidence of Rwandan military support for the fighters. Human Rights Watch urges Blinken to warn of consequences for abuses committed by the M23. <laughs> listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Thursday, August 11th. The National Prosecuting Authority in South Africa says at least 14 men out of dozens arrested faced rape charges after attacking a group of women earlier this month while they were filming a music video. Kit Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. A South African court on Wednesday charged seven men in connection with the gang rapes. Spokeswoman for the National Prosecuting Authority, Pindi Lau Majundoane, told VOA, adding that seven more will face rape charges tomorrow. They are all part of the 80 men initially arrested in a major police sweep following the incident, she confirmed. The women had been filming a music video two weeks earlier in the mining area of Krugersdorp outside Johannesburg when they were attacked by a group of masked armed men. Monjon Adwana said all those charged with rape were foreign nationals, including from Lesotho and Zimbabwe. Seven accused appeared at the Krugerstorp Magistrates Court, facing charges ranging from multiple counts of rape, sexual assault, contravention of the Immigration Act, as well as robbery with aggravating circumstances. Many of those arrested are believed to work as illegal minors, known here as Zamazamas. The incident has sparked anger in local communities, as well as xenophobia, with mobs attacking the Zamazamas. Police had said they would use DNA kits to try to identify the accused rapists among those rounded up, as well as a police lineup. However, Majana Dwane would not comment on how those charged had been identified. Despite having a very high rate of rape and gender-based violence, the brutal attack has shocked South Africa, which celebrated Women's Day yesterday. Police recorded more than 36,000 rapes in the financial year 2020 to 2021. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. 
In Guinea, the National Front for the Defense of the Constitution, also known as FNDC, is vowing to resume its demonstrations to pressure the military-led interim government to engage in a credible dialogue on a transition to civilian rule. This after the government announced this week the dissolution of the FNDC. In a decree, the junta accused the group of organizing armed demonstrations and acting like a private militia and jeopardizing national unity. The FNDC, which comprises political parties, labor unions, and civil society organizations, led demonstrations that eventually resulted in the overthrow of President Alpha Conde by the military. Alpha Fria Bari is a founding member of the FNDC. He tells me peaceful demonstrations are guaranteed under the Guinean constitution and that the military cannot stop them. He also says the military must release FNDC members arrested recently. The reaction is uh, to let uh, everyone know that action by the military was illegal. It does not based on any law in our country. And for us, we always going to keep uh, fighting for democratic values. And we even plan a protest in the coming days. You said the dissolution of your movement is not based on law. But doesn't the government, the military, as a government, have the right to prevent protests? No, because in any country, and actually even though we have military ahead of state, there is a, a law which we call chat in French. In that document, when you read in one of the articles, which is the Article 8, Number 2, they pointed out that all the freedom are legalized. Anyone who is not agree toward how the country is going on with the military, you can show out and protest. And it's based on that we base our action. Our action is legal and supported by all the Guinean community across the world. The military junta has accused the FNDC of organizing armed demonstrations and acting as private militias. Do your members have arms when you protest? No, that's not true. We are unarmed civilians who put their hand together to fight for democracy. And we have all the evidence that we, as civil society movement, we call the FNDC, we don't have no arms and we don't destroy anything. We just ask one thing. We want the country to come back to the normal situation. Because since September 5th, the normal situation was disrupted by the army. And they don't really want to tell people they don't want to leave the power, but they are using all kinds of violence to stop our movement. The FNDC suspended protests recently, but now you say you are going to resume protests. Why now do you want to do that? No, listen, you know, this is a a patriotic uh, act that we stood for since the regime of of Alpha Conde. In this country, the only goal we have as a movement is to fight to make our state respect the rule of law. That's the only thing we have to do. And that's what we are doing. You know, we suspended our manifestation because of the head of uh, CDAO. So next Excellency Umaru Sitoko Imbalo. And toward that, we give them almost one month 
to let them build a platform of dialogue. But based on all of that, we show the military don't care about dialogue. They only fight to build and to put action. Those are dictatorship action. And we're not going to leave our country in that kind of mindset. We have to fight and we have to keep fighting. Some of your members were arrested by the military junta. What happened now? Have they been released? No, they were not arrested. They were kidnapped by the military because there is difference between arrest and kidnap. And the head of the movement, whose name is uh, Umar Sila Fonikemenge, he was kidnapped by the military by 1.45 a.m. during the night. That's to tell you how the situation is really dangerous. Alpha Fria Barry, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Alpha Fria Barry is a founding member of the National Front for the Defense of the Constitution, FNDC of Guinea. He was speaking to me from New York State. The number of people displaced by the record-breaking drought in Somalia has topped one million, with the United Nations warning of widespread famine if emergency needs are not soon met. Mohamed Ayersen reports from Mogadishu. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, said Wednesday that Somalia's worst drought in more than 40 years has displaced a million Somalis. As the drought situation continues to worsen, UN officials said during the month of July, another 83,000 were forced to flee their homes because of the drought, with the worst displacement coming in the Bay, Banadir, and Gedo regions. Shaku Mshalia, deputy emergency coordinator for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, told VOA on phone Wednesday that the people are migrating in search of food and other assistance, he said. The FAO is trying to help. So our ability as a humanitarian community to be able to reach the um, um, affected people in their communities and provide the services that they need so that they remain in their place of origin tied to their livelihood and don't feel pushed to uh, migrate to the urban area and hope of receiving assistance. Unfortunately, in previous droughts, what we've seen is that a lot of the mortality that have been reported were people that unfortunately died on their way uh, to urban areas in search of assistance. FAO Somalia says it needs $130 million to fully fund its farming prevention plan designed to help about a million people in rural areas a statement issued by the FAO on Wednesday said that if the funding gap is not urgently addressed, widespread famine might be inevitable. Drought-related malnutrition has already killed 500 children, according to the UN Children's Fund UNICEF. Authorities in Somalia's ghetto region also confirmed to VOA more than 50 deaths of children due to suspected drought illnesses. The deaths were reported in the towns of Varere and Belethawuj border, Kenya. Ali Yusuf Abdullahi, the Gedo Regional Administration spokesman, said that the region is witnessing a catastrophic situation due to drought. He said 
that people are fleeing in search of a better life and have gathered in major towns including Dolo near the Ethiopian border. He says, as of today, Dolo has received more than 50,000 displaced people, and there are people who are coming from the Ethiopian side who were affected by the drought there and settling IDB camps in Dolo. He says, the town administrators are doing their abilities to provide relief, although that is not enough. Somalia's federal government declared the three-year drought a national emergency last year. The drought has affected more than 7 million people. According to the Somali Prime Minister's office, the drought has also killed more than 2 million livestock. Mohamed Daisane, VON News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And that's it for this Thursday, August 11th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voa.africa. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Street Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I'm James Botti in Washington saying, have a great day, and please be safe whatever you do. Mm-hmm.